Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where O is for Octopussy, the 13th James Bond film released in 1983 starring Roger Moore as 007. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we head to the circus to decode Roger Moore's sixth Bond film, it's the Mishka to my Grishka, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. <laughs> and our special guest this week, it's a man who knows a fake Fabergé egg when he sees one, it's Cam the Provocateur from the Spy Hearts podcast. Hey, I'm Cam, happy, welcome. happy to be here and I'm glad you didn't refer to me as like C. <laughs> well, so we all know what C stands for. <laughs> Careless. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, now, before we dive into Octopussy, just want to remind people that we are looking for your underappreciated James Bond moments for our 60th anniversary special coming out in October. So if you have a moment from the James Bond films that you want to stake a claim to, um, all you need to do is record yourself talking about it, introduce yourself, tell us what the moment is and why you love it and email it to the show at podcast at jamesbondaz.co.uk and we'll include as many as we can. So, Cam, first of all, Octopussy. Where do you stand with Octopussy? What's your history with it? Octopussy was one of the earliest Bond films I saw. I was introduced to Bond through View to a Kill. My parents told us after my sister's soccer game one day, kids were ordering in pizza and watching a James Bond film. And that uh, kicked off a love affair off of View to a Kill. And Octopussy was one of the first ones we watched. And it just became a staple of our household. That and The Spy Who Loved Me were just watched over and over again. And honestly, like I was a huge fan of Octopussy, and it's one that I still find a lot of fun just because of how crazy it is. I like that there's a bond for every mood. And when I'm looking for my like 1980s Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of ripoff, you know, silly Bond movie, I want Octopussy. And so I've watched it many, many, many times. How about you, Brendan? It's... One of my least watched, I think. One of my most ignored. I think I watched it when I was younger and just went, no, that's, that's, that's me done with that one. <laughs> um, for me, I remember watching it very vividly with Wheatley, our, our co-host, watching it at his house and, and sort of laughing at the, the obvious stunt people on the train sequence. But um, I think now, like, um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably... Uh, 
it's somewhere with you, Brendan. It's 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 one of my le- lesser watched ones, but there's a lot to enjoy in it, I think, and we will dive into all of that. But uh, first of all, um, the synopsis for the film: James Bond is back as an, in an electrifying adventure as 007 investigates the murder of a fellow agent who was found clutching a priceless Fabergé egg. Trail leads to the mysterious octopusy, whose traveling circus features a company of luscious athletic women. This is MGM's synopsis, by the way, not mine. Um, <laughs> Bond and Octopussy share a passionate attraction, but soon 007 discovers that the elegant Kamal Khan is working with a mad Russian officer to hurl mankind into World War Three. So, is it an all-time high? Brendan, let's I mean, kick things off. I mean, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense of the plot, which is kind <laughs> of uh, something that the movie struggles to do with. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of 1983, give a bit of context at the time. So, the the uh, the top three grossing films. So, number three was Flashdance with 92 million dollars. Two was Terms of Endearment, 108 dollars, uh, 108 million dollars, and no prizes for guessing what was number one. I'm sure you both know what was number one in 1983. Return of the Jedi, of course. Yeah, 252 million. Um, so, we're sort of getting into the the blockbuster territory now of Hollywood you know where they're just making big bucks and this film this Bond film was actually the first one to be released with the MGM lion at the beginning and I was shocked because for some reason I think I've I've tricked myself into thinking they all had it but then I was like I know the Connery ones of course they don't now it just seems like a Bond staple MGM had merged with United Artists in 1982 so the, the year before the release and formed MGM UA Distribution. And they, they released two films that year, and they were both in the top six of the highest grossing. So quite a successful start. But I think we did... Did we do MGM when we did M? I think we have done MGM, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a storied studio, isn't it? Yes. But, of course, 1983 was the year of two Bond films. See Never Say Never Again episode, which we've done very recently. This was the Eon-produced film and uh, the non one never say never again of course was uh, f- released four months uh, later because it had delays and I think 1983 George Lazenby played a character called JB but I can't remember what show it was oh it's um, Return of the Man, Man from Uncle that's it that's it so it was actually the year of you know all, all three uh, who had played Bond were you know, had played Bond in 1983 so what a big year for Bond fans <laughs> but we needed to find a new Bond. Yes, and um, Roger Moore, I guess after For Your Eyes Only, was kind of like, you know what, I think I'm okay. And so they were looking to find a new Bond, and they looked you know, a few places. They started off um, in early June of 82. They looked at Michael Billington, who was an English-born actor who'd auditioned for Bond over the course of his career five times, and he played Sergei in The Spy Who Loved Me, Triple um, X's love interest at the start of that movie. And he was best known for the British series UFO, which I've never seen. But they kept coming back to this guy. He never got the role, but he was someone they just consistently went to when they were looking for a Bond actor. They also looked at Oliver Tobias, who was a Swiss actor. Best known, I guess, for the TV series Smuggler or Dick Turpin. And he also played Joel in 1977's Jesus of Nazareth, which was a huge miniseries in the uh, in that particular era. But the one who really grabbed their attention was someone they started testing later in June, around 22nd, 23rd, which was John, uh, James Brolin, 
who at the time was a pretty well-known American actor. He'd done films like Amityville Horror, Capricorn One, Westworld. And he did two screen tests for them, and he said he spent a fortune on clothes. He wanted to look the part, and he pretty much had the role. He was headed home to pack to basically move to London for a period of time when he received word that Roger Moore would be coming back. And I found a quote from um, John Glenn about this. He said, James Brolin did an excellent test. The bottom line was Cubby didn't want to use an American. I was left with the feeling that Cubby would once again make Roger an offer he couldn't refuse. And Roger agreed to come back for one last time. That would not prove to be the case, but at the time, one last time. And I have heard various you know, insights on this over the years that Never Say Never Again did play a role with this, where if they were going to be opening a Connery film that year... They wanted a reliable actor versus maybe throwing James Brolin in there and putting him up as uh, against Connery. Yeah, I've heard that, uh, that that take on the story as well. Um, interesting that you um, you said he spent a lot of money on clothes because you can watch the screen tests um, uh, on the DVD extras and uh, he's stripped to the waist as they often are in this uh, in the screen tests and he does it with Maud Adams, I believe, playing Tatiana Romanova and he looks he looks great. And I know that uh, Michael G. Wilson like is defending having an American saying he's he's sort of mid-Atlantic mm-hmm. and he sort of talks about the suaveness of him. But he looks so much like Christian Bale. It's quite unnerving. Or or his son, Josh Brolin. I, I tend to mm. notice that similarity very strongly too. Yeah. But interesting when you think about it, because this kicks off, this movie is sort of comes in the middle of a... Um, uh, a trilogy i would say like a trilogy of roger late roger moore films so fiori's only octopusy view to a kill and it's each one they're sort of thinking about whether it's going to be a different bond or not and i always wonder whether you know these films would have been different had there been a different bond in there you can imagine they could have slotted another bond in that sequence it's quite just an interesting hypothetical to me i think james brolin would have, would have done a good job he would have had the physicality i think to really pull off a lot of these stunts like roger moore you know there's a lot of doubling and very obvious doubling in these later you know as you said the trilogy but like if you had someone like james brolin i think he would have had that kind of you know dalton in living daylights kind of energy where it's like i want to make this authentic yeah, I think the joke was that at the time it was uh, J- uh, the James Bond movie starring Roger Moore and his stunt doubles. Um, <laughs> and they are noticeable in this movie. Right, so writing the script. Now, Octopussy um, is a the name of a, an Ian Fleming short story. Um, and in fact, Octopussy, the movie, takes, um, takes elements from that short story and Property of a Lady and The Living Daylights, three, three Fleming short stories. As you mentioned, I mean, in the ether um, in Hollywood was the success of Indiana Jones, uh, which had preceded it in 1981. So that must have been an influence of sorts, because when they went looking for a writer, they went straight to George MacDonald Fraser, who, as we discussed on previous episodes, was the writer of the Flashman books. So he was hired to write the script. And one of the things that you'll hear a lot on the uh, behind the scenes stuff for Octopussy is that they wanted it to be a boy's own adventure. Um, you guys familiar with that phrase? Only because Spielberg throws it around like crazy, and so does George Lucas in all the making of uh, Indiana Jones documentaries. So the Boys' Own Paper was a was a British uh, story paper, and it was aimed at, at, at young teenage boys. Um, it's quite a long running thing from 1879 to 1967. It's where you get things like Biggles comes from. Um, a lot of the stories are about like imperialism and the British Empire. 
Um, it's tales of daring do that sort of stuff. Um, and so that was a big influence and that's a big part of, Fla- of the Flashman book. So that's what they wanted when they hired this guy to write the story, um, write the script for Octopussy. He'd also done work on the Musketeers movies um, and the, and Superman. Um, and one of his initial ideas for the script was to have a pre-title sequence set um, during the Isle of Man TT race. There was also another scene that he wrote with uh, uh James Bond trapped in a cage with a gorilla, which we kind of got a, uh, a nod to <laughs> later on in the finished movie. There was also a lion tamer scene at the circus, but that was dropped uh, apparently because they didn't want to offend their new bosses at MGM, whose logo is a lion. Um, so uh, Fraser's script was at first 200 pages long, um, but he had didn't have much experience at writing scripts. And so he'd written it like a shooting script and, um, it was then later um, Michael G. Wilson and Richard Maybaum picked it up uh, with some influence from John, from input from John Glenn to get to the the script that we got now. Now most of Fraser's dialogue apparently was dropped, but the core structure of the movie remained, um, and some of his action sequences were streamlined. Um, but, but one thing we know that Fraser did add, add was the addition of Miss um, Smallbone as um, Money Penny's. A possible successor but uh yeah if you want to know more about small bone we covered her on the money penny episode recently um so when michael g wilson and richard maybaum took it over maybaum talked about it. he said that he wanted to continue with the remit that they'd had with for your eyes only as in keeping it down to earth he said we, we we will not press a button and have a miracle happen bond has to do it for real and he might have to suffer um so yeah, so that's what they were aiming for. Um, there was a slight um, issue with the title of the movie, Octopussy. Um, there was a story in the LA Times that called the, the title of the movie Obscene, but Cubby uh, Broccoli, the producer, he said that they were just trying to stir up controversy where there wasn't any. And they took, uh, they did polls about title, apparently. They showed the title to women um, who objected to the movie uh, title. I think it was about 43% they objected to the title of the movie. But when they were told it was James Bond film, that dropped to like 10, 15%. Um, so they mm. felt they were there was enough of uh, ground public support for the title Octopussy and they kept it. You could never pull that title off now. No way. No. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of talk on the behind the scenes stuff about them talking about the title of the film and... Uh, it is quite interesting. Like Christina Wayborn was very sort of anti it, as was Maud Adams. Um, even Roger Moore was a bit sort of like raising an eyebrow, um, <laughs> so to speak. So, um, uh, yeah, because yeah. they'd, they'd had a lot of flack for Pussy Galore as well, hadn't they? Like, yeah. So you know, it's just more, more, more of that. What were they expecting? You know, twenty years later. In terms of the crew, we've got John Glenn back to direct after he directed For Your Eyes Only. We've got Alan Hume doing the cinematography. Um, it's edited by Peter Davis and Henry Richardson. Uh, John Barry's back to compose the music again and production designed by Peter Lamont. Now, Peter Lamont, amazingly, it's, it's quite the story. He was, he was actually involved in a, a, a hijacking uh, whilst on a, a flight in India. So on the 20th of August, 1982... There was a, a militant who, uh, armed with a pistol and a hand grenade, hijacked the Boeing 737, which was going to Jodhpur to New Delhi. And there were 69 people on board. He got on board at Udaipur, and the the flight was from Bombay to Delhi. So, yeah, he uh, 
he basically got them to circle around above Lahore uh, Airport 42 times, which hmm. can you imagine how sick you'd feel going around that? Oh, with, the, with the fear as well? Uh, and then because it was running out of fuel, obviously, it, um, it had to land in Amritsar. Uh, the the guy who had hijacked he wanted um, he wanted eighty lakh rupees in German marks and he wanted the transfer of power in Punjab to Akali Dal um, and the release of some Sikh security uh, grantees. So he didn't get what he wanted. He was finally apprehended apprehended and shot dead. And um, Peter Lamont talks about this in the making of where it was sort of a bit of a ham fisted way of doing it the guy basically fell as he was try- about to sort of take take fire and aim he fell from the uh, Peter Lamont says he, he just fell from the plane and then uh, they they got him um, so everyone bo- everyone on board was was rescued including including Peter Lamont so terrifying but you know luckily no one was no one was hurt well, they wanted a boy's own adventure yeah, <laughs> yeah. they got one pre-production yeah <laughs> It's always interesting, those, like, Hollywood stories you hear about people that were, like, booked on, you know, planes that had things like this happen or almost had things like this happen, mm. you know? And it's like, yikes. Yeah. I guess when you travel that much in a career, you can run into some scary stuff occasionally. Mm. Yeah, Wasn't there one on you, you Only Live Twice that they'd missed a flight and or they'd stayed behind to watch a sumo? Yeah, and it crashed. Yeah. yeah. That was it. And then that plane crashed. Yeah. yeah. God. Yeah, and so we have some uh, returning cast on this film, and uh, so we'll start with Robert Brown, who had played Admiral Hargreaves in The Spy Who Loved Me, and it was actually um, Roger Moore who apparently suggested him for the role of M going forward, based on experiences of working with him on the 1950s series Ivanhoe, where um, Robert Brown played Garth, Ivanhoe's armor, and Roger Moore played uh, Ivanhoe. And um, John Glenn had also... I don't know that he really worked with Robert Brown, but they had a credit in common where they both worked on The Third Man. Robert Brown played an uncredited police officer in the sewer section of the movie, and uh, John Glenn was an assistant second editor. And so, yeah, we'll have Robert Brown going forward with the franchise. We also have Desmond Llewellyn and Lois Maxwell, of course, back as Q and Monty Penny. And I put the two of them together because it's, you know, pretty clear that, like, they're going to be in this franchise going forward. But when you watch um, behind-the-scenes stuff and also interview footage from the red carpet, it's very clear th- these two were on, like, parallel trajectories that were kind of going in the opposite direction almost in a way, where it's like um, Desmond Llewellyn is so excited. He's like, I'm getting more and more to do in every movie, and this is fantastic. This is the best one yet. And Lois Maxwell is very reserved in that uh, red carpet footage and basically just, uh, you know, they ask her about how the experience was and she says she shot the whole thing before lunchtime on day one. And she says, um, you know, when asked about the evolution of her time on the bonds, she says, well, apart from three bonds, my parts become smaller. It's like, (laughs) okay. And as John Glenn notes in the commentary, you know, he says it very indelicately. He's like, well, Monty Penny was getting on. It was time to find her, you know, a replacement. And so, yeah, they brought in Penelope Smallbone as a potential, you know, assistant who might become the next Monty Penny. They did ask Lois Maxwell about this at the premiere. And she was very gracious. She said, 
She's so beautiful. I have to forgive her for being in my office. She really is lovely. But you can see, I beg people, look up this footage of this premiere. It is a very, like, lopsided interview of Desmond Llewellyn being very excited and Lois Maxwell being reserved. But you can just kind of read between the lines there. Sounds awkward. Yeah. We also have uh, Walter Gotell coming back. This is his fourth time playing um, Gogol. He was also, of course, in From Russia With Love as Morzani. But um, one note of this was when they were filming the scene of him chasing down Orlov, um, Gotel actually fell and cut his face, and they had to stop shooting and put makeup on him. And uh, John Glenn said that they were back shooting within about half an hour, but it was a bit of a scary moment. But Gotel would, of course, appear a couple more times, uh, View to a Kill and uh, Living Daylights as well. And uh, we've also got uh, Jeffrey Keen coming back as Minister of Defense. This is his fourth film since The Spy Who Loved Me. And Jeremy Bullock closes out his run. He played Smithers in this film and in Free Your Eyes Only. He was previously on The Spy Who Loved Me in a different role. And this same year, as noted earlier, he would be taking a header into the Sarlacc pit. <laughs> as Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. Oh, and I found an interview with Bullock as well, and uh, they asked him if he was ever you know, approached about another Bond film or anything like that. He just said no. His interview was amazing. It was just one sentence answers to every single question. <laughs> and uh, he was like, nope, uh, I would have had to keep one day a year, a year free, but uh, never happened. So I like the idea of Smithers. I like uh, Q having an assistant that you could have as a recurring character. I feel like it's something that is due a revival, um, personally. I also like uh, the idea of a small bone coming back as well. I think she's didn't get enough to do um but um, it's a good idea uh right villains so this film has a litany of villains i mean there's just they're just coming out of their ears in this movie you've got um the french actor louis jordan he plays the afghan prince kamal khan he was apparently a hollywood heartthrob in the 1950s and was an old friend of cubby's and roger's um, and had been they'd been trying to get him in a Bond movie for a while and had, apparently he'd been turned he, he'd been offered the role of Hugo Drax in Moonraker but had turned it down um, and so I think it was at a Hollywood party that Cubby and Louis Jordan crossed paths and Cubby said do you want to be an octopusy and um, he, he took it on apparently he was a big hit with all the um, people in the crew just because he was a sort of a, a, this heartthrob who had, um, yeah, been a huge name in Hollywood. Um, so, yeah, he plays Kamal Khan. You've got Stephen Burkoff, who we have covered in a recent episode under the letter O for all of. He was uh, obviously a very noted stage actor. Um, and uh, reading between the lines, you know, his reputation for being a larger than life personality is true. Uh, Roger said on the commentary, you know, that he really liked to chew the scenery. Um, John Glenn was very effusive about his sort of contributions through um, improvisation, all that sort of stuff. And he built, he brings a massive performance to this movie. It must be said. Then you've got Kabir Bedi uh, as Gabinda. Um, again, we covered him on a, a previous episode, but he came to, came to the film through the writer, George McDonald Fraser, who had previously worked with him on a film in 1971 called Ashanti. Um, now, Kabir Bedi had been pushing to give uh, Gabinda some sort of mystical abilities um, to play on the, you know, the Indian themes of the of the movie. He wanted him to be able to levitate and do charms. 
have supernatural powers. But that was dismissed as being too unrealistic. And so, um, yeah, that we, there we there we learn the limits of John Glenn's imaginations <laughs> on James Bond films. So no, no Baron um, Samady style superpowers. No, okay, no, we've done Baron Samady. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, too unrealistic. Um, and then finally, we've got David and Tony Mayer as Mishka and Grishka, the circus twins, and we covered them in a previous episode under the letter C. So uh, yeah, go back and visit that. And there's also, I mean, there's lots of different villains and hench people that sort of crop up and get knocked off. There's the guy with the um, circular saw as well. We'll talk about it a bit later. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 literally brimming with villains. This movie. What about the ladies in the movie? We have, of course, Octopussy. Um, Octopussy is uh, a, a businesswoman and a smuggler of jewels. Um, and the, the, the main Bond woman in this. Uh, and also the titular character, which is a first and only for, for Bond. Um, played by Maud Adams, who we have done way back when. Probably episode one, actually. I think it was our first episode, yeah. yeah. Um, so in terms of the character, the character of Octopussy was created for the film um, and borrowed from Fleming's story of Octopussy. Octopussy was the name of the octopus that Major Dexter, Dexter Smythe loved, the uh, yeah, the pet octopus. And of course, they just sort of adapted that. So in terms of casting, uh, Sybil Danning was announced as being Octopussy in 1982. Um but that never actually happened. Cubby Broccoli said that her personality was too strong. <laughs> They'd been looking at using Faye Dunaway in a previous film. I'm not sure which film it was. Might have been, oh, was it Thunderball or something? Yeah. Um, it was, like, yes. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. It was Thunderball. Yeah, that's it. Um, so they they wanted her for the this, this role. But I'm going to contradict. I think it was Diamonds Are Forever, was it not? That's possible oh, too. Oh dear! It's that oh, era. We're gonna get we're gonna get some emails now. Listen, you carry on, and I'll Google it. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so, but in terms of this, Faye Dunaway was deemed to be too expensive. Obviously, they've thrown such a good deal at Roger Moore, and that that takes away from the budget of what you can do elsewhere. Barbara Carrera has also uh, been a record of saying that she turned down the role. Uh, so that she could play Fatima Blush in the other Bond film, Never Say Never Again, because she wanted to work with Sean Connery. Um, so there you go, Sean Connery, a bigger pull than Roger Moore for Barbara Carrera. They also looked at South Asian actors uh, to play Octopussy. So they, they looked at Persis Kambata and Susie Colo. Uh, also auditioned Kathleen Turler and Barbara Parkins. But finally, they went for Maud Adams and... Uh, Maud Adams obviously had been in The Man with the Golden Gun previously. Um, and they had they used her to screen test potential bonds. Uh, so she was well and truly on their radar. And they, they that's who they went with. So yeah, if you want to find out more about Maud Adams herself, go back to the uh, A episode. Uh, then we have Magda. So Magda is Kamal Khan's uh, hench person. Uh, and also the right-hand woman of Octopussy. Again, the character was created specific, specifically for this film and was played by a Swedish actor, another Swedish actor called Christina Wayborn, who was actually bought, born Britt Inga Johansson, 
uh, in Sweden. And she was Miss Sweden in 1970. Um, she got the role because she, they'd seen her play uh, Greta Garbo in a TV movie called The Silent Lovers. So that made the producers aware and that's, that's how she got the role. In the scene where she is fighting uh, Kamal Khan's guards, she actually did a lot of the, the fighting and during that scene she uh, had an accident and broke several of her toes. Um, and she also does, you know, the where she co- jumps out the window and uh, sort of, what do you call that thing when they... Go, Sorry, on yeah, novels, doesn't she, it? Yeah, she, she actually did that. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, she also appeared in an episode of That 70s Show, which reunited, and I've never seen this, but they, they it reunited uh, Bond girls, Maud Adams, Barbara Carrera and Tanya Roberts. I think so the Tanya, Tanya Roberts character was getting married and the other three were the bridesmaids. Is that right? I believe that was the case. Yeah, I actually, yeah. we interviewed Barbara Carrera on Spy Hards and I did ask her about this. She was like, yep, I needed some money at that time. <laughs> Fair <laughs> she enough. She did say it was fun. She enjoyed working with all of them and said it was a fun experience, but uh, it was not a great, I need to reunite with the, you know, Bond girls of the past kind of attitude yeah. when she signed on. Then finally we have Bianca. Um, who is a, she's employed by the British Secret Service um, she's at the beginning of the film and she's played by Tina Hudson who I don't think went on to do anything else after this because I can't find anything uh, that she did I, so I did some research on that one as well because I wasn't sure if she would fall into my section or yours okay. and um, so she seems to have vanished and yeah. I did find a note in Living Magazine which I cannot say I'm a, a subscriber to but they noted she was 17 at the time of shooting. Yeah, I've read that as well. She was 17 when they shot this. Yeah. So yeah. I think she was just like headed off in a different life journey at that point. There was someone I noticed like on Etsy or something who looked a lot like her and had the same name, but I couldn't confirm if it was the same person. <laughs> <laughs> that, is the, that is the level of detail I look for. <laughs> you mean you mean you didn't buy something from her just to, just to spark up a conversation? <laughs> Um, I was like, do you remember appearing at the very start of Octopussy? <laughs> Ban. <laughs> Block. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a short short little uh, appearance, but I, I really like the character of Bianca. I think it's quite it's quite good. Um, mm. Final word on Faye Dunaway. Uh, yeah. She was considered for, she auditioned for Domino and she was considered for Tiffany Case. So we were both right, Cameron. Oh, there okay. you go. Yes. So um No yeah. angry emails. No angry emails. But I think Racco Welch was the one that was most closest to getting Tiffany Case before uh mm. before um Faye Dunaway, but uh yeah. Um I wonder if Dunaway would have even been interested in Diamonds Are Forever really, because she just come off of Bonnie and Clyde. She's kind of in that era of ushering in new Hollywood. Like I don't know that she would have been jumping at Tiffany Case at that point. So, no, yeah. it would have been uh yeah, it would have been a big casting, wouldn't it? It would have been, yeah, yeah. But there was some very strange stuff went on behind the scenes in the casting of that movie, so um, she probably had a, a lucky escape. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. So as for the allies in this film, um, we introduce Vijay Armitage as Vijay in the film, and he was a two-time singles quarterfinalist at Wimbledon. At the time, he was also a former doubles semifinalist. He was the first Indian player to turn pro at the ATP Tour, and the highest ranked player from India. So, I mean, this guy was known as a huge tennis name at the time. 
and not an actor. So people who watch them may be confused as to, I've never seen this guy before. And he has a pretty significant role. That's why. Um, and he was a friend of the Broccoli family. It happened because Cubby would often watch him at Wimbledon and apparently sent Barbara to invite him to tea. And they kind of just hit it off and they ended up bringing him to the studio and were kind of like, well, you know, could you use him? And so John Glenn had to think it over and said, okay, we could definitely use him as a contact in, you know, Octopussy for that film. And um, there was actually issues with the casting because, you know, Amritage was not a um, actor with the uh, UK Actors Union. So that was kind of a problem. And uh, so what they did was they got, they got him cast in an episode of Fantasy Island, which was produced by a friend of Cubby's named Leonard Goldberg. And getting him in that episode of Fantasy Island got him a membership in the U.S. Screen Actors Guild. So then that kind of paved the way for him to appear in Octopussy. And there's a number of, like, in-jokes tied to him in this movie. There's obviously a lot of tennis stuff, you know, him hitting people with a tennis racket, which was little bits that uh, Michael Wilson and uh, John Glenn devised for the movie. And they also had bits with the snake. And Amartage did not like snakes. He was actually (laughs) quite put off by them. And so there's a line where he tosses off where he says, I hate snakes anyway, or something along those lines when he meets Bond. And it was because he literally couldn't stand snakes. And yet, uh, John Glenn says by the end of the shoot, there would be sequences where like the snakes would be getting away. They were just really tough to manage. And at the end, John Glenn and Amortage were just going around picking up the snakes and putting them back. They were just like, eh, <laughs> we're over it. We're over it. And uh, the snakes, there was no venom. They'd been like milked or something, so they didn't have venomous fangs. So there was no real danger. But uh, John Glenn said they just got over that real, real quickly. And uh, a couple other notes just about Amortage. He didn't act a lot post-Octopussy, but he did appear as a starship captain in Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. It's a pretty blink-and-you'll-miss-it appearance, but he does show up on a view screen in that film. And he went on to become a humanitarian, big time. He had done a fair amount during his time as a tennis player, raising awareness for people who were impoverished in India. And he would go on to promote uh, international unity. He would become a United Nations messenger of peace and the founder of the VJ Amritraj Foundation, which is aimed at aiding victims of disease, tragedy, and circumstance in India. So, you know, quite a legacy for this guy. He's still around. He just got an award actually fairly recently for his humanitarian work, um, but not a screen presence going forward, perhaps unfortunately, depending on how you feel about the character, who I think is actually a lot of fun in the movie. And um, also we have, in terms of allies, we've talked about her already, but Penelope Smallbone is introduced here, played by Michaela Clavel, who was the daughter of author James Clavel. Um, This was her only major credit, so there's not a lot to say there, really. Um, You have Douglas Wilmer as Fanning. He is the the man who goes with James Bond to the auction. He was a veteran character actor since the 1950s, and he'd appeared in a lot of epics, like a lot. Uh, (laughs) Movies like El Cid, Cleopatra, Jason and the Argonauts, The Fall of the Roman Empire, Golden Voyage of Sinbad, just to name a few. They must have liked this guy in togas and whatever, uh, because, like... It seemed to be his go-to type of casting role. Uh, he did appear also in a couple Pink Panther movies. He did uh, bit parts in um, A Shot in the Dark and also Revenge of the Pink Panther. And then also, I think the two greatest allies in this movie, I think we can all agree, we have Booby and Shotzi, the uh, German drivers that drive Bond around later in the movie during the you know heavy uh, car section. 
And they were played by Gertan Klauber and Brenda Cowling. They were just veteran character actors, appeared in just a ton of stuff. Klauber would actually go on to appear in The Living Daylights as a fairground cafe owner. And he would also play the mayor in Top Secret, the spy spoof starring Val Kilmer that is a real cult fave. And Cowling, you know, has just a ton of TV work primarily, but she had just come off playing a teacher in Pink Floyd, The Wall, which is a pretty cool credit to have. Right. Uh, just for a quick mention for Fabergé eggs, I guess if you, um, <laughs> before we dive into the production stories, but um, it, if you think of this movie, I think one of the key hooks is the is the Fabergé eggs. Um, <laughs> they play a big part in the film. It's one of the most striking Bond props, probably in the whole film series. Um, and the idea for the using the Fabergé auction comes from the um, short story Property of a Lady, the Ian Fleming one, which appeared in uh, Sotheby's annual uh, publication, The Ivory Hammer. Um, and so uh, for the film, Peter Lamont commissioned the jewellers Asprey to make two Fabergé eggs. Um, and the choice that they the design that they went for was a replica of an imperial coronation egg, which was made originally in 1897. So um, the production buyer, Ron Quelch, said our sketch artist produced something very similar to the Fabergé eggs. And they were reproduced by Aspreys in a very short space of time. They were capable of, with, of withstanding very close camera work as they had been created with such quality. Uh, and interestingly, one of them ended up back at auction in 2006 and sold at Christie's for £1,200, which to me seems quite a low price for the uh, octopusy egg. Well, they're not real, are they? Well, they're not real, but I feel like maybe a uh, an iconic Bond prop like that might go up for a bit more now. Um, that's mm-hmm. my hunch. Not that I know much about auctions or props, or, <laughs> but it just feels like it's quite low. Um, well, right. the, the, the eggs, the Fabergé eggs are actually one of the reasons I don't really like this film, I think. I, I just sit <laughs> I sit through the first 15 minutes going, I don't care about these eggs. I just don't care. It's a very confusing subplot, let's be honest. No yeah. one can keep track yeah. of the eggs in this movie. <laughs> okay, so on to production. And we have the pre-title sequence. Um, and when I recently watched this, I'd completely forgotten the whole pre-title se- sequence. Um, so we have Bond. Um, he is... Uh, well, the the main stunt in this is him flying uh, an aircraft, which is hidden in a uh, horse box underneath a fake foam horse back end, um, <laughs> which is which then comes out and um, the stunt pilot um, and aerial stunt coordinator Corky Fornoff, who I think we covered in F, or I remember. I don't think we had we did, but we have talked about him recently. We've talked about him, haven't we? Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. So he piloted the plane. And uh, it was going at 150 miles per hour, which is 240 kilometers an hour. Um, and he said, today, few directors would consider such a stunt. They'd just whip it up in a computer lab. Um, uh, yeah, unless it was Tom Cruise, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of filming inside the hangar, they attached the plane to an old Jaguar with a steel pole um, and then drove it through. So it, it looked it looked like it was going through the hangar um and then the second unit they added all the obstacles in the way so you've got the the people and different objects and other planes inside the hangar to hide the car and the pole and so it made it look like uh it was actually flying into the base um and then for the explosion um was that was a miniature of the of the hangar 
the actual hangar is is still there in in real life. It's uh, RAF Oakley, so it's near Oxford and Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire in the UK. The actual hangar closed in 1945, but it was so well preserved they they wanted to use that. Um, it's, I think it's now privately owned. The uh, the stuff set in Cuba as well was actually that was shot at North Holt Aerodrome, um, which was an RAF station in Ryslip, uh, West London, which is not too far from Pinewood actually. So yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's it's quite a good uh, opening scene. It's not one of the most memorable, clearly, because I've forgotten it. But um, <laughs> the the line that it finishes with, where he says "fill her up," they'd actually wanted to take it out. I think John Glenn wanted to take it out, and then in one of the test, uh, not the test screen, in one of the trailers, he was there for the response to it. It got such a big laugh that they decided to put it back in. So yeah, that's the opening the opening pre title sequence. And the Acrostar itself is a real plane. It's, it's what was it? Did, did you mention that? It's like a B, called a BD the, the, the or something. B, BDBD5J. Yeah. yeah. And they'd wanted to use it in Moonraker, but uh, obviously that film has got way too much stuff in it already. So they saved it up for this one. Um, and yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's quite an impressive little vehicle, I guess. Makes a lot of sense for Bond to use it. But um, I think in, in terms of the... The greatest um, opening title sequences, I think it's probably mid-tier for me. Mm. Um, yeah. And interesting that it follows, you know, Moonraker's um, parachute jump, Fuel Eyes Only's. Um, got Blowf- the- Blowfeld in a chimney. Blowfeld in a chimney, yeah, but it's got that action. It's, it's another aerial stunt, isn't it? Flying through the buildings with the helicopter, etc. Yeah. And then another one uh, with a tiny plane. It's kind of... Yeah, I think uh, of those three, I think this is probably most the the, the least exciting. But um, yeah, um, I I don't mind it. My sister is the proud owner of the Eagle Moss model of that Acro Star, so it impacted someone out there big time. <laughs> <laughs> did she play it fly around the room? <laughs> it's those little dioramas, you know, the ones that they did ah, for like okay. all the vehicles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Coffee, medium sweet. Two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? Okay, so when it comes to the locations for this movie, it's so funny because, like, growing up watching this movie as a kid, I just assumed they were always shot in all the locations they indicated with their, you know, credits at the bottom of the screen. So I was kind of genuinely shocked to find out they only shot in Berlin for six days for this movie. And it was really just, like, the Checkpoint Charlie stuff um, right at the start of the production. That was, like, day one, August 9th, 1982, was them filming that Checkpoint Charlie stuff. And it was, you know, Roger Moore and Robert Brown at the Berlin Wall in West Germany. This was the height of the Cold War. It was heavily guarded. There was East German cards. And they did not know that they were going to be filming. They had not gotten permission, you know, to go in from West Germany to shoot potentially over the wall. And so they were being photographed consistently. John Glenn said it was incredibly tense. And uh, they basically went through the checkpoint into no man's land and turned right back and headed the heck out back to West Germany or to West Berlin <laughs> and did not look back. So, um, yes, it was a, a bit of a tense shoot, but then the rest of it is interesting in that, like I'd always assumed that so much of it was just 
um, also shot in West, you know, Berlin, but that was not the case. It was uh, like um, faked um, in UK locations. So when you have, you know, 009 at the start um, being chased um, and, you know, going to the British ambassador's residence, that was Heatherton Hall in Pinewood. Um, When he falls into the water, that's at Orton Mere in Cambridgeshire, the River uh, Neen, I believe. And, um, you know, we touched on it earlier, but I think um, the the RAF base, but like they, uh, for the um, big uh, top circus that they go to, that was the Upper Hayford Air Force Base in Oxfordshire, UK. And it stood in for the West German Army Base. And uh, it was used during the Cold War to house U.S. Strategic Air Command Bombers. And so it had a bit of a history. And when they were shooting at that location, there was protests going on against nuclear weapons. John Glenn says, you know, Greenpeace were there and all that sort of thing. And it was a little bit distracting to try to shoot that sequence. But I just found it so fascinating that uh, so much of this movie that I'd always assumed were these authentic locations were all just in the UK. Yeah, I think that you can say that about this film is it is technically brilliant the way they've put it all together because it does shoot all over the place. I did learn one thing as well when I'll talk about Pinewood in a bit, but um, there's the, sh- the bit where Q is f- fishing on the edge of the riverbank. They sh- shot that in reverse looking out to, to the water in India with a, a double for Q and then they recreated a riverbank for Q in, the, in in England. So he never got to go to, to India, unfortunately, but uh, it, is, it is incredibly well put together. Um, and uh, they did shoot a large portion of second unit in America, even though the film doesn't take place in America, it isn't set in America. They shot a lot of second unit in Utah, mm. notably a lot of the stuff for the Acrostar sequence at the beginning and then also the skydive with Bond and Gabinda at the end and all the stuff on top of the aeroplane, all that sort of stuff. Um, so when you see Bond take off in the Acrostar, that is um, the airport that you just mentioned in the UK. But then when it's in the air and it's flying through the air, that's all in Utah. And there's a bit where he fl- it flies under the bridge and that was um, a bridge somewhere northeast of St. George uh, in Utah. Now, the stuff, the stunts on the aeroplane, it is incredibly breathtaking stuff, I think. Jake Lombard and BJ Worth did all the all the aerial work, um, as they had done on Moonraker and would do on View to a Kill as well. And the behind-the-scenes footage, um, John Orty from Behind the Stunts has, has videos of all this stuff online. And it also there's a lot on the DVD, ex- DVD extras. But watching these guys climbing out of the planes, hanging onto the planes, like like crawling around, doing all the test stuff. It is mind-blowing. I would highly recommend it. I'm sure I'll share it on our, on our Twitter. But um, when you see what these guys do, I know that like you know Tom Cruise gets a lot of praise for doing all the stunts himself. Um, but I think, you know, these guys deserve as much praise as any actor who does these um, mm-hmm. stunts. They're incredibly daring. Uh, they're incredibly well-realised. Um, and I think that's one thing about this era of Bond. Although for me, the films aren't as amazing as they have been. The stunts are incredible. Um, they are incredible. Like the imagination and the determination and the all that sort of stuff to pull them off, I think, cannot be doubted. Absolutely. The the effort they go to to get that spectacle, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's also like an era where 
I mean, stunts, you know, the Eon has a good track record for pretty safe stunt work, but like it's still an era where the safety protocols aren't quite what they are, say, nowadays. And so just the fact that these guys were doing this unbelievable stunt work, an era where it was a little bit more of that almost like cowboy stuntman mentality, I mean, it's unbelievable. Okay, so filming in India, John Glenn uh, went on a recce to Udaipur and um, he discovered that, that all the locations they needed for the film, they could do there, all in one place. And they said that was incredibly useful because India is such a vast country that, you know, and the transport's not great. So, you know, if they'd have got some places spread out across the country, it would have delayed the shoot by some, some time. Um so yeah, the filming in India, it began on the 12th of September, 1982 um, in Udaipur, which is in Rajasthan area of India. So the exterior of Kamal Khan's palace is the Monsoon Palace um, and Octopus's Palace was filmed at the Lake Palace, which is actually a palace that's built on the lake. Uh, Roger Moore actually said about filming in India, he said, working on such locations was always very difficult because Bond is not supposed to sweat. Bond's hair doesn't get untidy. He's always in a dinner jacket. I became exhausted changing shirts, so I didn't look as though I was perspiring. Um, and he also says that, you know, he, they would do one take and that was it. They'd have to change that. Like, it was so hot. Where Bond is, where he's in the tuk-tuk, the tuk-tuk chase in the Udapur market, there's a guy on a, I don't know if you remember this, there's a guy on a bike. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he he didn't know it was filming or anything like that. So he's completely unaware. Um but they left it in because it added the suspense. So they were like, Yeah, fine. It's He know. comes flying past the camera, doesn't he? It took yeah. pull apart, he whizzes through and then the tuck mm-hmm. come back together. It's absolutely insane when you when you spot it it's, and, and it's, know it wasn't rehearsed. Yeah. Absolutely unbelievable, you know, circum you know, circumstantial. It's great. Um, and he looks so carefree when he does it. <laughs> yeah, because if he had have known, I'm sure, I'm sure he wouldn't have looked that carefree. I think he'd be terrified <laughs> what was going to happen. In terms of Udopor, the, the region, um, it was actually used in 2011's film, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Um, so it's it's clearly a, a place that, you know, because of how it looks, filmmakers like to, like to choose it. Uh, they needed to get permission to shoot in Udopor. Um, it had to be given by the Maharana Singh. And he would then, during the shoot, entertain the cast and crew, uh, invite them over for dinners. And then they would, he would serve them specially made rose wine. So, you know, it, it benefited him giving them permission, didn't it? Because he got to sort of uh, host. And then in terms of Roger Moore, he visited the area again 23 years later in 2005 as a UNICEF goodwill ambassador. So we talked about this in the Roger Moore episode. And he was promoting the use of iodized salt. And somebody asked him how he looked, how he looks so, how he stays so young. And uh, he gave that as his reason. He huh. iodized salt. What? <laughs> yep. What is, what is the benefits of iodized salt? I had no idea. <laughs> it's a dehydration salt, isn't it? I think it's yeah, for when people it are dehydrated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> one thing I will say about in the, the use of India here, I think it's kind. It's almost under. They don't. I don't think they exploit it enough. No. Um, no. I feel like because also a lot of it is, is shot on stage at sound stages as mm-hmm. well that you don't really get a real sense of what yeah. it's like there. And obviously, some of the cultural portrayals are so 
on the nose. It's kind of, uh, I'd love to see Bond go back to India. Um, I think they'd do it much better now, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would. Yeah. yeah. And I think they looked at it for Skyfall or, or Spectre, but it didn't, didn't come together. Um, it, it probably ages better though, than like the usage in Temple of Doom the next yeah. year. I would think that, uh, you know, Octopussy comes out looking a little bit rosier than uh, Indiana Jones does. Yeah. So while they were shooting in India, they were also working on the train stunts in um, in the UK, which once again, illusion shattered. I just assumed they were in you know West Germany sending these trains back and forth, but not the case. They used the Neen Valley Railway, which is a private railway out of Wandsford Station in Cambridgeshire, uh, England. And apparently they used trains very similar there to the ones in East Germany. So that's why it was chosen. And Arthur Wooster was returning to do second unit on this film. Well, the first unit was, as I said, in India. And one of the key stunts in this movie is the sequence where Bond is on the side of the train. And this sequence was being done by Martin Grace, who was a stuntman who'd been uh, brought into the franchise with You Only Live Twice. He was a protege of Bob Simmons, the original Bond stunt actor. And he was essentially being groomed to take over as 007 um, going forward by Simmons. And... Now, John Glenn notes kind of pithily in his commentary that this was an amateur railway run by volunteers, so maybe not the, you know, the most intensely run operation. And on September 28th, they were doing that stunt, um, and Grace was on the side of the train, and they had checked the railway line, but they hadn't looked past the point where they were supposed to stop, and somehow they exceeded the stretch of track that they were supposed to be on. And ran right into an obstruction in the form of a concrete post. And it hit Grace at about 25 to 30 miles per hour. And um, he held on despite, you know, several broken bones. You can watch the footage on the making of, on the, you know, the duck, or on the um, Blu-rays and DVDs and what have you. But it's like unbelievable to watch. This guy was really badly hurt and ended up in hospital for the remainder of the shoot he did not work on it again and arthur wooster almost quit over it he was so just shaken by it and so very traumatic for all involved and ultimately um paul weston who also began on you only live twice another veteran stunt guy who worked up until skyfall he took over and completed the shoot and arthur wooster did finally kind of find you know his uh, ability to sit down and uh, come back to the franchise and shoot the rest of that stuff so it was very intense have, I was just curious, have either of you been to the Neen Valley Railway? I haven't, no. Um, yeah. And famously, it was used again in GoldenEye as well. But um, mm. uh, it's actually not a million miles away from where I live. So I think I might have to convince uh, convince the family to take a trip there. Yeah, it sounds really cool. It's, I will definitely visit there when I come visit the UK. And they also shot like all the car on the track stuff there, um, where they modified the Mercedes with wheels to drive on the train track. That was a gag that uh, John Glenn had long wanted to do. And there's the part where there's the incoming train and you see Bond jump off the car onto the the train. And the way that John Glenn describes it, he says they were shooting through a full length mirror. I can't even like wrap my head around how they did it, but it was like a very simple trick. But it's pretty effective when you watch the movie. So you're watching essentially a reflection of the same train coming forward and getting closer in the mirror. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then they just launched the car using an air ram. So there was no train coming in 
That's very impressive. That movie magic. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And it wasn't like a you know blue screen or green screen effect or anything like that. It was done through a mirror. I'm like, okay. That's why they're the geniuses, and I am not. Um, <laughs> and the other really key part of the train sequence is the bit where Bond is under the train. And that was actually all done in um, Pinewood Studios. They transported the carriage to the studio, suspended it in the air, and put moving backing on the floor. So nothing's moving except the floor. So when you're seeing Roger Moore hang under the train, it's actually the floor that's moving. And they had motorized wheels on the train to give the illusion that the train is rolling. And they had to suspend Roger Moore on a rig with wires because he had to basically keep his weight covered because if he was actually hanging on, it was too much exertion over a number of takes and he would lose all his energy. So that was how they did that. He was actually just hanging there. And um, Kabir Betty, while he's like swinging with the sword at him, had a 12-volt battery on him with wires that ran down his arm that shot sparks out from the sword. (laughs) Wow. Mm. So that's how they did that. And John Glenn had a good little line where he talked about the use of the train, and he said, steam hides the multitude of seams. (laughs) And so, like, if you were to probably see these train sequences without the steam all over the place, it would probably look pretty clunky, but steam did a lot of the hard lifting for this sequence. (laughs) I've got a quote from Roger Moore about this uh, sequence, um, if you'll uh, indulge me. He said, I had to hang on the underside of a coupling, and behind me was a rolling drum simulating the moving track. It wasn't the most comfortable of mornings. King Constantine of Greece visited the set that day and watched me complete his scene. He came over afterwards. I don't know how much they pay you, he said, but it's not enough. I didn't disagree. (laughs) (laughs) There was also a little bit, too, where they put Roger Moore under a train, um, just suspended. And they'd done it really light where it was going to be just Roger Moore and a couple camera guys. And it was this rig they'd built. And Roger Moore basically said to John Glenn, if I'm going into there, so are you. So John Glenn had to wedge himself in there as well because he was going <laughs> to take it easy and be like, you know what? I'm concerned about the weight. I'll just stay out of this one. And he was dragged in by Roger Moore. Fair play to him. Right. So, yeah, the the bulk of the shoot then took place at Pinewood in November 1982, uh, from no- November 1982. Um, they've been um, obviously been shooting there for, for 21 years at this point, um, the, doc- the the James Bond movies, starting with Dr. No. And um, Peter Lamont obviously did a lot of the, the hard work in terms of creating all the sets for um, them to shoot on. So some of the notable sets that he built for that uh, at Pinewood were... The palace interiors, octopuses, bedroom with that amazing bed, the big Russian war room, which I think is one of Peter Lamont's greatest uh, achievements in Bond. Obviously, the interior of Sotheby's as well. And then the 007 stage was home to the Monsoon Palace. Um, other stuff that you'll see, again, that was in uh, the film but done at Pinewood is the, the streets of Udapar. There's the bit at the end where they shoot, he shoots through a poster and then it gets replaced. That's a, that's a set at Pinewood. And also Q's Lab, that was made at Pinewood. Uh, one of my favourite sets is the Kremlin Art Repos- Rep- Repository, um, which is where uh, you get this stuff with the egg and uh, Orlov and uh, Kamal Khan. The way that they actually did that was a forced perspective set. It looks like a huge like underground like place, but actually it was just a painted backdrop um, and a very small set at the front of it. Um, so there's that. Uh, one of the interesting things, Kamal Khan's Fortress... They shot the start of that in India 
and then they completed all the interior stunts um, on a soundstage. So where, where they'd been filming in, in intense heat in India, they were actually filming in intense cold in November. And pretty much everyone in the behind the scenes stuff complains about filming in the cold. Um, and you mentioned Christina Wayborn getting involved with the stunts. So she, she broke her toes, but apparently she also put a stuntman in hospital uh, during the fight scenes because she was so into it. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, some other trivia for you. Um, the stuntman who um, uses the buzzsaw on a on a yo-yo, he was filming the bit where he's creeping up over the balcony above the bed and he actually fell through the balcony because he'd removed the struts um, because he couldn't walk along it without... Um, yeah, so he removed the safety struts and when he leant against it, went over and broke his arm. So there's some shots of him in the movie where he's got a visible plaster cast on um so yeah he had a bit of a, a tumble um and then finally just to mention the circus tent the interior of the circus tent now apparently all the extras and all that sort of coordination on that was overseen by barbara broccoli herself this is one of her first big jobs on bond um and one of the days when they were filming inside the tent there was a visit from christopher reeve who was shooting superman 3 on another soundstage at Pinewood. And obviously that then gifted us those amazing photos of Roger as a clown with Christopher Reeve as Superman. Um, and talking about it later, VJ Armitra said, Christopher Reeve in his cape came down into the commissary at Pinewood one day when Roger and I were sitting at a corner table and he sat with us and I almost died. I was completely in awe of these two characters sitting with me at the lunch table, Roger Moore in his black tie and Christopher Reeve in his cape. How do you beat that? You're having lunch with James Bond and Superman. I mean, what an image that is. Yeah, that's unbelievable. I mean, that's two icons there. I mean, I'm sure Roger Moore probably would have preferred that that photo was him in like a very suave tux from, you know, maybe the spy who loved me or something. But, you know, it is what it is. They're both iconic outfits. Talking of the clown outfit, I mean, this is something that John Glenn talks about on the on the DVD commentary. He often talks about, you know, how much he loves the visual humor of, of of making movies, and he talks about how Roger was sort of hesitant about putting the clown suit on, and he also talks about how he was hesitant about putting the gorilla suit on. And I just wonder whether John Glenn perhaps pushes it too far a little bit on this movie. Did did Bond have to be a clown? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a bit silly. But talking about the film in general, Roger Moore said Octopussy was a joy to film. The cast were wonderful, as were the crew. It was a fitting farewell to my tenure. In my mind, I was preparing to bid farewell to Bond. And it was a, a massive shoot. They shot sometimes five units at once for Octopussy. So um, the production, I think when it was over, I think they were probably all quite relieved. So into post-production and the music, if you remember from our For Your Eyes Only episode john barry did not do that because ring the tax klaxon but this time he's back uh and it was his ninth bond uh film in which he actually hammered down on doing references to the james bond theme purely to reinforce that octopussy was the official bond film because they that he knew that never say never again could not use any of that, could not make it sound Bondian. So he sort of doubled down on it. And uh, th- that's why you hear it more than you probably have to have done in the the previous couple of Bond films. He also, he tried to use local music of India in the soundtrack, but it, it said it didn't, didn't really work dramatically and it lost a lot of 
of power um so unfortunately couldn't couldn't use it and as i was i was watching the film the other day um i kept thinking that it was going into um uh, we have all, all the time in the world and it it's it's got it's got a lot of i know they use the same sound the bond sound is the same but there's a lot of all time high that that is reminiscent of yeah very the, much on so. a majesty's yeah soundtrack yeah and the song um, which <laughs> polarizing one among Bond fans done by Rita Coolidge, who was an American singer at the time, two-time Grammy winner, best known probably for her cover of Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher. She was, you know, quite popular during this era, and I have a quote from her from an interview. She said, Cubby Broccoli's daughter was a fan, and she wanted to wanted me to sing the theme for Octopussy, and she started playing my records around the house, and Cubby said one day, who is that? That's the voice I want for the movie. I met John Barry and had a lovely dinner at his house, but I didn't meet Tim Rice, who did the lyrics on the song, until the next day in the studio. Tim was still finishing the song. We were waiting for the lyrics as the track had already been done. It's a wonderful song, and I am very proud to be part of that family. Now, Tim Rice, as many will know, was you know, incredibly important lyricist, worked on most of, I think, almost all of Elton John's music. He, of course, won an Oscar for The Lion King as well. So huge heavyweight there in the music world. And um, yeah, so like, it's interesting because Rita Coolidge has been a little back and forth on that because there's also quotes from her saying that like the song was unfinished. So there may be a little uh, historical revisionism going on there where later on she's like, you know what? This song was a gem and what an experience. But uh, yeah, it's one that even when the it came to charts was a little polarizing. Like, okay, so in the US, it reached number 36 on the Billboard Top 100, which, you know, isn't great. It isn't like a home run, but it did make number one for four weeks at the adult contemporary charts. So when it came to easy listening, AM radio, that's where all time high <laughs> really roared. Uh, in the UK, though, it rose no higher than number 75 and remains Oof. the lowest charting James Bond theme. It mm, was, all-time however, low. Exactly, all-time low. <laughs> it was, though, a hit in Austria, Finland, Germany, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Switzerland. And number 38 was its high point where I live in Canada. So, you know, it was real mixed response to that song. It did get no Oscar nomination, though, for best song that year. So that's a little... A little damning because uh, Free Your Eyes only had gotten a Best Song nomination at the Oscars. Isn't it used in TED? I believe it is, yeah. And they really struggle to get the rights for it um, because Barbara Broccoli doesn't normally let people use Bond theme songs. Oh, um, interesting. I've got a picture of him. So. I've got a picture of a bear watching. I mean, it's, it's got to be TED, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not Paddington. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, this is the theme song from... The movie Octopussy. All I wanted was a sweet distraction for an hour or two. Had no intention to do the thing. Still better than Katy Perry. Funny how it always goes with love when you don't. Right, the titles, we've got Morris Binder back doing his 11th 
uh, out of 13 of his Bond titles. And now he deliberately avoids using circuses uh, or Indian motifs in his in his opening titles. Um, and he actually returns back to the Robert Brown John style of projecting onto women's body. And this time it's using state-of-the-art lasers to project the 007 logo and also an outline of Bond. I think it's quite interesting that, um, you know, lasers were science fiction in, in the time of Goldfinger, but now they were being used in the Bond titles. I thought it was quite quite an interesting connection. But um, uh, Binder said, we used laser beams and projected these images of, on top of nude girls. I've used computers before, but I wanted to use them for something more than swirls of smoke. Projecting laser beams gives quite brilliant colours. So, yeah, I mean, it, I've got to say, it's quite an interesting title um, for for this one there's uh, other motifs that you see in them you've got ice skaters spinning round why ice skaters in this movie and not the previous one i don't know uh, there's also it shows us there's a weird bit where it projects like a silhouette of roger moore as james bond mm. um and it's also got quite a lot of nudity in this one i think this is one of the ones where if you were a kid <laughs> a young boy this is probably one you'd be pausing a lot um <laughs> The and the 4K or not 4K, but the uh, the high def transfers on the Blu-rays was definitely eye-opening. Watching a lot of those sequences <laughs> from this era. <laughs> um, an interesting Morris Binder was in charge of the trailer campaign, and if you've watched any of the trailers for this film, they're really interesting. Brendan, I'm employed to use one as the sting for the end of the podcast, but um, it's got Maud Adams introducing the film, and obviously with the other Bond coming out, they're really playing up this idea that mm. this is the real Bond film, and Maud Adams is this really interesting. Uh, it, to camera introduction for the trailers so uh yeah worth checking out yeah so the posters um so there's a few different posters there's one interestingly a teaser one that they released just after they'd started shooting at checkpoint charlie um uh probably again because of the two bond thing they really wanted to get the excitement up um so there's yeah there's one of uh roger moore has got a gun it says 007 has started shooting at checkpoint charlie uh, for release 1983 um and then you've got um another one where it's got nobody does it better 13 times and it's got 13 roger moores in a row mm. um again they're really going for this being the official bond um but the the most famous one is the one that's basically there's everything going on in the background you've got bond uh being uh hugged from behind by octopusy and it says james bond's all-time high um and it's got a few yeah the 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 drawings in the background are like the action scenes and moments from the film um one of the iconic i guess because hand-drawn we we you know we always we're a big fan of hand-drawn ones yeah it's a real lost art um Mm -hmm. the uh floating head uh photoshop era has been a dark one yeah (laughs) (laughs) i love the octopusy posters i think they're absolutely superb i think they're even better than the movie itself to be honest but Mm. um i love the typeface as well for the or the title treatment for the octopusy title as well i think that's really cool Mm -hmm. uh and unique um but yeah i think it really um yeah does a good job at selling the movie even if it's like you know eight-armed octopusy it's a bit on the nose isn't it Sometimes on so, the notice is perfect, though. Like, that's what you want, right? It sells that concept in a single image, and people go, okay, I want to see that. Yeah. yeah. And then you go and watch it, and she's only got two arms. Like, Hang on. <laughs> they got and your it money, really makes It really makes Roger Moore look statuesque, doesn't it? That sort of elongated mm. style. I think it does a real mm-hmm. great job of sort of selling him as Bond. Yeah, definitely. So the film premiered at Odeon Leicester Square 
Um, is that how you pronounce that? Leicester? Leicester. 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 Okay. That's, this is why, you know, us Canadians shouldn't be pronouncing some of these places. <laughs> um, so Odeon Leicester Square on June 6th, 1983. And it was notable because Prince Charles and Diana, Princess of Wales, were both in attendance for that one. Um, as I said earlier, that is where you can see that amazing footage of Desmond Llewellyn and Lois uh, Maxwell answering questions about the film. Uh, the movie was like, when it came to reviews, I try not to like focus too much on recent reviews. Because when you look up Rotten Tomatoes, it has like a 43%. But if you go through, it's like a lot of reviews from the 2000s where it's like, I, I don't care. Like, you know, it's someone who's coming at it from the point of view of where Bond is at that point in time. So, again, like 43% on Rotten Tomatoes right now, 63 on Metacritic. But I dug into reviews from the time. And so, like, Siskel and Ebert um, were very split on it. Siskel enjoyed it more than the last few, he said. And he loved the action sequences. He was really big on, especially, like, the Acrostar opening. But, like, a number of the action scenes, like the train stuff throughout. Ebert said he had a real sense of deja vu watching it more of the same and he really took aim at the uh one-liners in the movie he hated those one-liners to the degree that people ridicule the mr freeze ones in like batman and robin like they really broke him so the other uh, critic i drew from was vincent canby from the new york times he said better than most glenn does much better here than he did with for your eyes only However, the material is markedly better, and the big and the budget seems noticeably higher. I tried to find a UK critic, but I could only find one from the 80s, and it was a very vaguely half-written review that basically just said, Bond's back. Great, fun movie. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, forget it. Like, it was that sort of generic review where I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? So those were kind of the bigger reviews. It seemed like, though, when I looked over a lot of the 80s stuff, People, critics really responded to the action in this movie. Like, it felt to them like, you know, raising up kind of like an evolution of where Bond action was going. But a lot of them drew attention to too many confusing villains. The movie has a bit of a confusing plot, you know, the Fabergé egg stuff. But a lot of them still gave it positives because of the action. And it was, you know, a hit. It uh, domestically did 67.9 million, international 119.6 for a worldwide total of 187.5. And that, when you compare it against Never Say Never Again, that movie did 160 million. So, you know, Octopussy overall did 20, uh, what, 27.5 more than um, Never Say Never Again. So I guess Octopussy won the Battle of the Bonds that, that year. Octopussy did make a little bit less than Free Your Eyes Only, which did 195.3. Just a little bit of a downgrade, but, uh, you know, strong enough that Roger Moore would get offered view to a kill as well. So the Battle of the Bonds, Eon was victorious. That's right. Right, awards. In terms of awards, I mean, there's not a huge amount to say, but uh, it did win. Um, uh, it was nominated for... Um, Maud Adams was nominated at the Saturn Awards. They're sci-fi awards, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also the film won the Golden Reel Award for the Best Sound Editing, apparently. And in Germany, it was awarded a Golden Screen Award for selling over 3 million tickets. But uh, let's turn to our three word reviews. Now, every time we do a Bond film special, we ask our um, listeners or followers on, on Instagram to share their three word reviews on the film. And we'll go first with Nikolai Quack. He says, fantastic stunt work. Agreed. Um, and 
Jonathan McNamara and also Jonathan Sothcott, friend of the show, both went with All Time High. So they're obviously big f- fans of the uh, of the movie. Richard Griswold goes with Better Than Moonraker. Brendan, what do you think? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Chris Quick, though, and not just Chris, Chris Quick. He says it's his favourite Bond. Well, Timothy Todd says it was t- Moore's most underrated and that Bob Madison, he says best in series as well. He said, he adds, I say that without irony. I think Octopus is one of the great Bond movies, if not the very best. Um, Wardy says better with age. So he's growing to love it a little bit more. And um, Ratman's goes for a very literal Maud Adams returns. Steve Clamp went with darker than reputation. And probably my favorite on all, of all is Space Odds 1985. He said Burkoff on Coke. um which uh, i think is fairly uh yeah fairly accurate as well so i mean that's that that's basically wraps up our episode on octopussy but what do you guys think of 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 octopussy and um um where where do you stand on it generally now i mean for me it's too there's too too many storylines going on there's too many villains there's too many moments where you know, he's in a crocodile, he's dressed as a gorilla, he's a clown, and I don't care about the eggs, and that means I don't care about the film. You know, and, and people who listen to the podcast know that I'm not Roger Moore's biggest fan of playing Bond, but uh, yeah, this this doesn't have a lot for me to enjoy, apart from those fantastic set pieces, really. For me, I think Octopussy still plays really well. I enjoyed the heck out of rewatching it just to do this episode the other night. And I think it's because, like, you have those Bond movies where they just throw everything at the screen. Moonraker, you referenced just a you know couple minutes ago. And, like, there's a lot of people who get really excited about Moonraker. And I think for me, like, Octopussy is my Moonraker. It's the one you can't really defend from, like, a script point of view because it is just an assemblage of action scenes. But those action scenes are so fantastic that I have just a ton of fun. I really do enjoy the camp aspects of this one. Look, I don't want camp in every Bond movie. I'm not saying I want the next Bond, you know, who takes over after Daniel Craig to be, like, doing this sort of stuff, doing, you know, clown costume stuff. But, like, I like how much fun this movie is and how committed it is to the bit. It's, like, you can just feel, like, Roger Moore's kind of, like, winking sense of humor at play in almost every scene of the movie. And it just kind of carries it through on kind of, like, a breezy good time vibe that... You can look at a one like The Spy Who Loved Me, and that feels like very focused, almost like um, comic book storytelling. This is the one of like, just hang out with Roger Moore for two plus hours and just have fun times. And I always find it very engaging in that kind of regard. Way more fun for me than like, say, View to a Kill, which is also really crazy, but feels really draggy to me. Yeah, I, th- I you put a very good case forward there, Cam. I, I think there is a lot to enjoy in this film, and a lot of it rests on Roger Moore's shoulders. I think he 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 seems to be having a lot of fun, as he said in his book. You know, this is he he really enjoyed making this movie, and that comes across in him. Technically, I think it's it's terrific as well. So a lot of the the the, the tricks of the the movie industry that, that we talked about are you know just shows that the, and and also the the set design and the production design, all that sort of stuff, just shows that this is you know, a production team working at the very um, peak of its powers and really demonstrating what they can do on, on screen. But I think, unfortunately, I think it's the script, the the storyline that, that really lets it down. I wonder whether George MacDonald Fraser, it would have made a more interesting novel for him 
than perhaps the screenplay uh, that it ended up being um, because there is so much there's such a rich story going on in it that you wonder whether it might have worked better in a longer form than what we got here because there's so much to get through and this is a film with about five different climaxes at the end Mm. as well the film just feels like it's going to end and then there's another bit and then there's another bit and then there's another bit because of all these different storylines that they need to tie up um and they said that they wanted to keep it down to earth after for your eyes only but and they do to a certain extent there is not as much sort of high-tech wizardry gadgetry going on but i think the john glenn habit of going for the visual gag um, just undercuts so much of the seriousness in this movie. Um, that it's just intense silliness. Mm. Um, yeah. And you're either on board with it or you're not. Cam, you're on board with it. Brendan, it seems like you're not. I'm not. I've just, me, you've just reminded me, actually. You mentioned the visual gags. You know when he's messing around with the camera and he aims it at the, the woman's cleavage in the... In the oh, yeah. Yes. Ridiculous. <laughs> he's a, it's a 60-year-old man. You no, you're not doing that. Not not even back then. That's not happening. Not believing it. Not like soggy that. bread. That scene. That's for sure. Yeah, awful. Yeah, and then you've got the stuff with the 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 rope. Uh, the climb. The guy climbing up the rope in 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 Q's lab. It's got the bit as well where someone plays the James Bond theme while they're in the market. Like yes, that. I mean, just cut that. No, yeah. we don't need that. No. That's silly. Um. And I know in Fiora's only we had them playing Nobody Does It Better on the keypad, but that makes sense. <laughs> it's a code. Yeah. It's an audio code. Mm. Um, when they're playing the James Bond theme in the market, no, it's silly. And the tennis racket as well. Um, but, you know, for some people, this is like the pinnacle of Bond. And mm. fair play to you. I mean, if you can get that much out of it, then I, I to, to be honest, I'm really looking forward to seeing it again on the big screen um, because I feel like it will play better for me than it does at home on the big screen as many of these do is this to you two like the silliest bond movie because i know that you know when i grew up watching this one it was fairly popular but then over time the tide really shifted and it became like this one that was widely dismissed as just like the trashy camp bond movie and now i feel like it's creeping back into a little more popularity but like does this one just feel like the silliest bond movie no, they're sillier than this. You're, you're, That's what you, I think too. You only live twice is is sillier. Um, I find diamonds are forever sillier too. That that is silly. Um, Die another day. Um, yeah. Uh, Moonraker. Yeah. They're all of an ilk, aren't they? Um, mm-hmm. And I just think at this period of Bond, I think is it's it's you know they've survived uh, Harry Saltzman leaving. Cubby's on his own. He had the massive hit with The Spy Who Loved Me. And he's just, they've just struggling to recreate that magic, I think. Mm. And at this point, I feel like there's a real fatigue. that The film suffers, I think, because of it going up against Never Say Never Again. I think perhaps this was the time for Roger to step away. Um, it could have been a different energy, like you said, with James Brolin. We could have had something completely, completely, completely new. Um, so, yeah. And I think that fatigue with it with the Bond producers um, continues. I think until we get to License to Kill, where they really commit to doing something different. I'd agree. Yeah, I I think. Yeah, I think Roger Moore had he have stood down after Moonraker, and they would have had a clean slate for the eighties. It would be very interesting to see where it would have gone. Yeah, the eighties was such a crazy decade, though. Like I almost feel like 
we were going to wind up places like this no matter what. You know, Superman 3, which we referenced earlier, comes out like the same year as this. And that movie is also just like crazy weird. It was almost like unless you were, you know, Spielberg, some of the real masters of the era were really cranking out top tier stuff. But like a lot of the 80s stuff just really got odd and long and kind of crazy. So I don't know. And I think it's interesting when you compare this one to Never Say Never Again. They both feel similarly weird. Yeah. But I think the Never Say Never Again doesn't have Bond in a monkey suit. It has him in dungarees. <laughs> but, uh... so, well, that's interesting. In the Battle of the Bonds, do you come down on Never Say Never Again over Octopussy? I'm Never Say Never Again. Yeah. Well, to... Brendan, you know my feelings on this. I think I'm more yeah, on the Eon fanboy. Yeah, so you are. I would yeah. go for Octopussy over Never Say Never Again. But what about you, Cam? Yeah, I'm big time uh, Octopussy and Never Say Never Again I've never really cared for, which is, you know, interesting because they both have a similarly cartoonish vibe. But for me, Octopussy carries it from beginning to end versus Never Say Never Again stalls out, I find, as soon as Fatima blushes off screen. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. So I guess that wraps up our episode on Octopussy. Now, in terms of the rankings, which we've been doing on our film specials, um, I think we've sort of hit an impasse with these, Brendan. I don't know how you feel, but I was wondering whether we might move to a top, middle or bottom tier ranking system. Um, yeah, that's fine. This is bottom. Move on. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I would go... go I, I think I would probably say upper middle tier for me i can't put it in the top that would be absurd putting it next to things like you know goldfinger and casino royale but like <laughs> when it comes to like that mid-tier it's ranking pretty high because it's one i like to revisit that's fair i would i'm gonna say lower tier as well but i uh, problem is is the lower tier becomes quite uh busy <laughs> at this stage mm-hmm. because we've already got dine of the day diamonds are forever uh view to a kill um they're all better they're all better than this. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is more, this is closer to me for like to Fiore, something like Fiore's only. It's like, it's not bad, but it's also not great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's inoffensive. But yeah. yeah. So I'm going to say mid tier for me. Mid? Um, That's mid. generous. No, I'm going to go low. <laughs> Fiore's only is really wobbly with picking a tone, whereas Octopussy, it knows exactly what tone it's going for. Yeah, it it just needs more slide whistles, doesn't it? Just to hammer it home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, um, this has been uh, it's been great fun to have you on, Cam. I really appreciate you coming on to do this. Uh, we've had uh, we've had Scott on. Now we've had Cam. We've had the the entire Spyhards coterie on. Um, hopefully, we'll get you to come back again in the future. Um, where do people find you online if they want to learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, so anything to do with Spy Hards, you can find us on social media at Spy Hards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S. You can also just go to spyhards.com. That's the home for our podcast. Or just find us wherever podcasts are available. We do a lot of Bond stuff, um, but we also do a lot of outside Bond stuff. So a lot of, you know, the obvious stuff like Born or Spy Kids, Triple X, things like that. But also just total shots in the dark. We done one fairly recently a gary cooper western spy film called springfield rifle we do 1930s stuff we do a lot of hitchcock so we kind of bounce all over the place week to week and we also of course have interviews with people that have made spy films we've talked to john glenn i referenced barbara carrera earlier 
um, you know, the writer of Triple X, the first one and the third one. So, yeah, we kind of do everything over on Spy Hards. Including one of our dinosaurs is missing, um, which Ugh. was my uh, which was my entry drug to uh, Spy Hards, I think, because uh, it was a childhood favorite of mine, like <laughs> like Octopussy was for you. So, uh, um, but yeah, I, I would urge you to, to check them out and um Thank you again, Cam, for, for coming on. And I, I, I was pleased to, that you got a Star Trek reference in there because I know you're a big fan. I am. And also we should note, Tom, you appeared on our Brosnan Roundtable episode, which is a really fun wrap-up to the Brosnan era. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I did that one. I also we, I came on and spoke with Scott about Operation Mincemeat as well. So uh, thanks for returning the love. Really appreciate it. But um, Brendan, if people want to get hold of us, how do they, how do they get us? Uh, on social media at James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at James Bond A to Z dot co UK. That's it. Yeah. And don't forget, we want your um, underappreciated James Bond moments for our 60th anniversary se- uh, special. Record it on your phone, record it on a microphone, whatever you can get your hands on. Send it to us as an audio clip under two minutes long, including you, who you are, where you're from, um, why you love this moment, and we'll include them in our special There's going to be a clown moment, moment, isn't there? There's going to be a clown <laughs> moment. <laughs> Please, if that's the bit you love, I want to hear it. If, you, if, if, if it's the stuffed tiger being shoved into frame in Octopussy, <laughs> I, I also want to hear it. Um, so, uh, yeah. So with that, uh, it just leaves me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Thanks a lot. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingomels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Nobody does him better. The newest and most exciting of all the James Bond thrillers. Step on it! This Bond tops them all. Roger Moore is Ian Fleming's James Bond 007 in Octopussy. I'm Octopussy. Octopussy racing across the screen with thrills and excitement. I don't know how to say goodbye. Action speak louder than words. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.